Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. So if you're visiting with us this morning, I would like to thank you for being here at Meadowview. My name is Chip Miller. I've been the worship leader at Meadowview for over 10 years now. And it has been with much grace and humility that I have been that worship leader. And you, my church, have been gracious to me uh, to put up with me as your worship leader. Uh, my family, my wife is here with me, uh, Mary. We have two kids, Evie and Daniel, who is not here. Um, but if he was, you would have noticed him on the first song. Uh, I do need to, as we begin this morning, address some pastoral gossip that has come to my attention over the past two weeks. Pastor Jeff has repeatedly set me up for probably uh, higher expectations, especially you, Jeremy. I know you have some really high expectations this morning. I am not contrary to the pastor's belief, the smartest man in the world or in the room, as he has said over the past two weeks. In fact, uh, I am one of the weakest men in the room, and that is what we're going to be talking about today, responding to God in weakness and worship. So when Pastor Jeff gets back, I know, Jeremy, you're part of his accountability group. We do usually have some questions in small group about how you've used your words, and that probably should be one of the first things that comes up to Pastor Jeff. Uh, contrary to the feeling of um, self-sufficiency, I feel like the poet Alfred Tennyson who said, Ah, for a man to rise in me so that the man that I am may cease to be. Let's pray this morning. Father God, as we have entered into these songs of worship that talk about how worthy you are, I feel so small. Father, as we talk about worship, God, I realize that our aim is sometimes so far off, and we shoot those arrows of worship at so many things, instead of the thing that is worthy above all else. So, Father God, I pray that you would be the object of our worship this morning, the object of our affection. Jesus, may you be the brother that comes alongside us. May you also be the object of our affection. Holy Spirit, this morning, may you be the teacher of our hearts, the mover of my lips, so that even as one has prayed this morning, that my words would pass away, but the words of Scripture would last forever. I pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. As we look at weakness and worship this morning, I know it's not going to be a popular message. All we have to do is look around our world to realize that that is not uh, what we seek. Um, I was looking this morning on Facebook. Don't worry, it's none of your Facebook pages. But one of my friends has been on a steady diet of some statements like this. He's got a, a meme up that says, Those who fly solo have the strongest wings with a picture of a big giant eagle. He's been on a steady diet of that for like 10 days, so I had to notice it. Uh, and, and it's okay to, you know, obviously post those things for motivation, but when that's all that you eat, you are what you, what you eat. So that's been his diet over the past few weeks. Uh, all we have to do is think about some of the, the famous phrases that are around here. So if you'll indulge me, if you'll finish this sentence, or finish this phrase, it's survival of the... Okay, good job. You got the first one. How about, it's a dog-eat... 
dog-eat-dog world, okay? Kill or... These are some of the phrases that are ingrained into our culture. Um, I remember studying in the 11th grade, there was a, a famous American author named Horatio Alger that used to write these stories about how kids would grow up and go from rags to riches. And that has become a part of our American culture. It's so ingrained into our American dream now uh, that we, it still pervades that ideal that we have. Uh, even in Christian circles, if you look at some of the, the latest Christian bestsellers that are out there, you'll see titles like Live Your Best Life Now, uh, Girl, Wash Your Face, um, The Road Back to You, that's the Enneagram book that I've seen a lot of lately. Uh, and those are the things that have topped some of the secular bestseller lists as well. Uh, those are the popular things that promote self-help and being the best that you can be uh, in the grandest of your efforts. Uh, it's not so popular to speak about weakness uh, and our great need for redemption, to abdicate the throne, as it were, and realize that this world that we have tried to conquer belongs to a totally different sovereign. Uh, we often worship at the altar of ourselves. Unless we think we worship ourselves, there is a, uh, a popular quote. Whoops, didn't mean to hit that, sorry. Popular quote by G.K. Chesterton. Um, that says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. So it seems that our, work, our, our focus in worship needs to be re-aimed. And so the definition of worship that Jeff's been using, that you've heard for several weeks now, is worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is and what He's done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way that we live. So, how can we respond to God or worship in our weakness? So, in your bulletins, I've got some notes this morning. The first way that we can do that is we can respond to God by longing to be found. We can respond to God by longing to be found. So, I mentioned my son this morning. He would have been on the front pew this morning dancing uh, with great joy because his favorite song begins with the line... This world is not my home. Perhaps you've heard that. If you were here. Maybe you were in the lobby this morning partaking of the, uh, the great treats that we have out there. But that was the first song that we sang. This world is not my home. I'm here but for a moment. It's his favorite song. We sing it every night, don't we, Mayor? Almost every night at least. Uh, and what a great truth for him to know that we're not here for very long. This world is not our home. We were made for something else. Uh, one of my favorite authors, J.R.R. Tolkien, said, uh, we are not only made, but we're made in the image and likeness of a maker. So that tells us something about where we come from and where we're going. There's a quote in your bulletin from one of Tolkien's contemporaries, and it says this. It's by C.S. Lewis. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So we can respond to God from the longings that we have in our heart. Think about it this way. King David, the ruler of Israel, had everything. 
He had power, he had wealth, he had talent, he had adventures, he had admiration. But he says this, uh, when he writes in Psalm chapter 27, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. David said that there was one thing, Uh, that he desired, one thing that he would chase after, one thing that his heart's affection could land on, and that was the beauty of the Lord. Augustine has said it like this. He says, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Have you ever felt like a refugee on this world? Have you ever felt like you're a visitor? Have you ever felt like there's something more? There is. And the deepest longings of your heart prove that that's the case. But that's not the end of the story. We are not just left to chase the longings of our heart. Um, That's the beauty of the gospel. And we're going to see that uh, this morning. Because Romans tells us in chapter 3, it says uh, that none of us understands, that no one seeks after God. But let's consider what Jesus tells us about himself and about the Father First, you'll see what he tells us about himself. He says in Luke chapter 19, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And he tells us a little bit about his father. He tells this to a woman that sits beside a well, an outcast in society, in the heat of the day. He says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us some parables that tell us what the Father's like. He says, the Father is like a shepherd that seeks after the sheep that is lost. He also tells us the Father is like a merchant who sees a pearl. And he, and he must possess it. So he sells all that he has. He tells us that we're like a treasure in a field. That the, own, that the finder must give up everything to possess. Is this consistent with God the Father? Consider our parents. Consider Adam and Eve. Uh, what did Adam and Eve do when they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed and heard the voice of God in the garden? What did they do? They hid. They hid from the one who could save them. Now, a couple of months ago... Daniel and I took a trip to a birthday party, and we went to a fire station for a fire birthday, which was great, Um, except that he was afraid that the engines would make noises, so he held his ears the whole time, which they never did. But um, as we were at that birthday party, we met some of the fire chiefs, and they told us a lot about what they do. And one of the things that they did that really captured my attention was they, they dressed one of their guys up in full gear, and they... They made sure that they interacted with the kids because they said, oftentimes when we're in a really crisis situation, when we're in a fire, and children happen to see a firefighter, what they end up doing is being afraid of him because they're dressed in this full gear. So the guy had on his mask and his oxygen tank, and he sounded like Darth Vader as he breathed. And uh, so they they really interacted with those kids. And so that made me call my, my friend Eddie who had served in the fire department for a while, and I said, Eddie, tell me about this. You know, I never thought about this until six months ago, but do 
Do kids actually run from firefighters in those situations? And Eddie told me several stories about how kids, he'd find kids in the bathtub hiding. They found one kid uh, underneath some pillows and blankets hiding in the midst of these crisis situations. And it reminded me of what we often do with God. Um, We hide from the one who would save us. Instead of running to the one who can help us in our time of need, we hide. We're not found. But the Father, He is constantly seeking after us. He seeks to find us if we would be found. John Stott is wise. Whoops. John Stott, excuse me. How far did I go here, Marcus? Went way far. Uh, John Stott has wisely said that God must speak to us before we can speak to Him. We must be found by God. That is the heart of the gospel, that He would find us. So, as we listen to the longings of our heart, may we realize that they point us to the Father that seeks after us. The second way that we can respond to God is with submission and obedience. Submission and obedience. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 22 now. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, you can. We'll have it up on the screen here in just a second. But as you turn to Genesis chapter 22, let's recap the story of Abraham uh, as we jump into this section. God had found Abraham. He had called, and Abraham had listened to his voice uh, in the city of Ur. And, And God had told him to move up and pack up and Go about a thousand miles away to Canaan, and and Abraham had obeyed. Abraham had heard his voice, he had been found by God, and he had moved. At 99 years old, God had appeared to Abraham and cemented his covenant with him in a very special surgical process. I will pause there and allow children to to form some questions for you parents later. Now we'll move on. Abraham had seen Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed and had been preserved by the word of the Lord. And finally, the son of the promise had been born to him in his old age. And now we get to chapter 22 and we see what else God has asked him to do. And uh, this quote comes to mind as we read this story. Worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. Worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. Let's look at the story as we go through Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. First of all, tested, not tempted. We'll see in uh, James as we continue in the book of James that God does not tempt us to sin, but God will test our faith. There's an important distinction there. Verse 2, he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So... Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. 
Let's pause there for just a second. I'm going to point a few things out as we go. First of all, the region of Moriah that we see there is actually Jerusalem. That's where the Dome of the Rock now stands, a famous Muslim site. You realize that after the voice of God has called, Abraham has to rise early in the morning. This worship costs him something. It cost him his sleep. I'm sure he didn't sleep well. That's probably the reason he got up early in the morning. And he also had to cut the wood for the offering. He had to spare his men. He had to bring servants along with him. And he had to take his most precious possession, his only son, with him. And then it tells us in verse 4 that on the third day, so after three days of traveling, about 60 miles from Beersheba to Moriah, Abraham lifted up his eyes, saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Worship. And come again to you. It's the first time that we see the word worship mentioned in the Bible. Pastor Jeff had a sermon on this. I think he used the word shaka over and over, if you remember him saying that. That is the same word that we're looking at this morning. That word for worship means to bow down, to depress, to Put yourself flat. And that's what Abraham said he was going to do. I and the boy will go to worship and come again to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So again, Abraham's been traveling for three days. I'm sure in his mind, this scenario has played itself a thousand times. And he's had to continually realize what it was that God was asking him to do. To sacrifice his son and offer him as a burnt offering. And yet... In those verses, Abraham tells his servants, I'm going to worship, and then we're going to come back. So somewhere along that trip, Abraham had already trusted God that whatever happened, that God would provide. So, let's continue the story. When they came to the place, verse 9, of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That's kind of important. Let's circle that in our minds. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. 
and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So here we see Abraham choosing to worship, to depress himself, to lay flat in front of the God that has called him to do this thing. And it's here that we see the angel of the Lord. Now that's a very special phrase that's mentioned in the Old Testament. It shows up in Genesis chapter 16 uh, for one of the first times. And I believe that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus that is there with Abraham because he speaks of himself in the first person. He says, because you've not withheld your son from me. He does that in Genesis chapter 16 as well. Uh, and that brings us to an important point, that it's in the midst, in the process of being worshipped, that God reveals himself to man. Um, let me get that quote right. It's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. It's here that Abraham has to make the choice to worship God, however painful, in submission and obedience to the call of God on his life. And it's a call that he's seen several times in his life, and he's struggled to obey it sometimes. But in this encounter, Abraham has for three days wrestled and has already laid his son on the altar in his mind. And then he does it, and the angel of the Lord visits, and God communicates his presence to man. The neat thing about this story is the New Testament tells us some commentary about that. Hebrews tells us that Abraham probably had reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead if he had sacrificed him. That's what the book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. And James tells us that because of Abraham's faith, it was credited to him for righteousness and that Abraham is considered a friend of God. To be called God's friend because of worship in obedience and submission. So we respond in worship in our weakness, when we submit in obedience to the will and the word of God. And lastly, this morning, we respond to God in and because of our great need. We respond to God in and because of our great need. Uh, as I was reading this week, one of the books that I picked up was by a worship leader who's kind of a contemporary. His name's Matt Papa, and in his book, Look and Live, he says... The goodness of God, grace, if taught properly, is incredibly dense and incredibly offensive because the prerequisite for grace is need. This grates at our independence. Grace is not an easy doctrine, and it's not cheap because it was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. To accept it, we have to acknowledge our great need. We're going to turn to another Old Testament uh, type this morning, Numbers chapter 21. So if you'll turn with me in Numbers 21, I'll have it on the screen. Let's look at the story that we have there. The background to this story is the children of Israel are wandering in the desert. They are totally dependent upon the God that would feed them, the God that would guide them, the God that would provide them water. And here we have the words of what happens even after a victory. This follows on the heels of a victory over the Canaanites. So from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. 
think that's an understatement. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, wait a minute. Didn't they just say there was no food? But they loathe whatever food God's provided. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. As it does so often in our lives, our worship goes awry. Our response to God instead of awe and gratefulness for what He's provided or adoration to Him for who He is becomes apathetic, uh, becomes discontent, uh, and a desire to be in the presence of other things uh, that we think will meet our needs begins to rise up in us. Uh, one author has said it this way, he says, when we sin, worship doesn't stop, it just changes direction. And here's what we see in the lives of Israel. Instead of worshiping the one true God, they start to worship the things that they think will provide them security or health. They say, you haven't given us water, even though they had seen water flow from a rock. I've never seen that before. They say, we don't have food, even though food falls from the sky every morning, and they can pick it up off the ground. I've never had that happen. They also say, we need a leader. They grumbled against the Lord and against Moses when they've been given one of the most humble leaders that has ever lived in Moses, that has provided for them through God's power um, a way out of slavery and bondage and a way through the wilderness. But God's grace was spurned here. And the results are catastrophic. We see what the results are. The results to poor worship is always death. And that's what the children of Israel got. They got fiery serpents. And they begged for those serpents to be taken away from them. And God did provide the antidote. He did not take away the serpents, but he did provide the antidote. Uh, the Bible is often the best commentary on itself. And in one of the most quoted passages of the Bible, John chapter 3, right before that famous verse that we all can recite from heart, comes these verses. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus is telling this to Nicodemus, and he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. That's the antidote. The antidote to poor worship is to see the object of worship. Blaise Pascal said this, he said, we forsake pleasures only for pleasures which are greater. And Christ is the greatest pleasure. That's why he is jealous for our worship. Christ is the antidote. 
Looking to Christ will solve our worship issue if we could just focus our eyes on Him. Famous worship leader that's written a couple of books, Bob Coughlin, says worship isn't primarily about music, techniques, songs, methodologies. It's about heart. It's about what and who we love more than anything. It's about what and who we love more than anything. Once we finally realize in our lives that we have such a need for the antidote, for the Christ who can save us, if we could focus our eyes, like the children of Israel did, on that serpent, if we could focus our eyes on Christ, He would be the remedy that we need to the worship problem that we have. I'm going to close with this. As we think about our great need, uh, one famous um, hymn that we sing, Rock of Ages, Cleft Me, has a verse that goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The, the result of poor worship is death. This morning, I urge you to be found in your longing, in the desires of your heart. I urge you to submit your life's purpose and problems in your great need to the one who has the answers. As we close this morning, this altar is going to be open. If you need to worship, if you need to fall flat, feel free before the Savior of the world. Look to Christ and live. Let's pray this morning. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.